Hallo Pascal Kraft. Hallo Frau Täter. So you are working in our group um, as a mathematical researcher, but our ways crossed for the first time when you were a bachelor student and uh, you were working on your bachelor thesis on so-called Julia sets. And um, from the fact that you are working now with us as a researcher, it's obvious that this is a few years, it was a few years ago. Uh, because between um, working as a researcher and the fi uh, finish of the bachelor thesis, there should be at least a bit of time for a master thesis to be finished. <laughs> Definitely. Um, but um, there is a good reason that now we come back uh, to talking about um, this really interesting topic of, of Julia Sets, uh, because um, we used it as an example in the lecture on Uh, mathematical modeling and simulation and that's also the reason why we are choosing to speak in English so both of us have German as their mother language but this course is in English and in order to have this as material for the students um, it seems quite a good idea to try to do this in English uh, so maybe just um, to, to um, have the conversation going or to start uh, with a definite point Uh, what are Julia sets? Julia sets are um, the points you get when you regard a certain function and you apply it over and over again to the same value and then you ask yourself, does this um, process tend to infinity or does it stay below a certain uh, value? So if you repeat the same function over and over again, you would expect for a big number um, that it would tend to infinity if that function in some way um, uh, if the function for example includes something like uh, um, uh, cubing the the uh, parameter that you put in or uh, includes a square or a multiplication with a big value then you would expect the, the function to tend to infinity on the other hand if you say divide by 1000 in every iteration step you would expect the function to go to uh, to tend to zero for most starting values and the question that you ask is depending on which function you use uh, for which starting values does it tend to infinity and for which starting values does it tend to zero and um, your intu intuition leads you to the point uh, of thinking that that the structures that you get for these Julia sets are basic or simple or that you can um, use your intuition to say this should look like a circle or this should look like a square or uh, only one point or it always tends to infinity or it never tends to infinity depending on the function but what you find in um, when you really go into detail and, 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 and look at it is that this behavior is, is uh, very difficult to predict or basically impossible to predict in some cases And that's why it's an interesting topic for, for study or for further research. I just have to laugh because they're kind of saying that since it's impossible, it's interesting. <laughs> no, of course, the interesting thing is that it's not easy to uh, just read off. So because the idea, of course, is that you start uh, applying your function. So maybe just putting it into a computer and just a repeating application. And then you have uh, just a look on the numbers in your display, for example, And then you see it's kind of decreasing to zero, for example, and then you know it's going to zero, even if you didn't really prove anything. But that would just be the kind of expectational behavior 
and and from these experiences um, you get the gut feeling that this should be always possible and it's not um, so is this uh, a problem that you have kind of very complicated um, functions which you apply so you do do they have to be constructed in a special way um, not at all, actually. The, the function that you typically use for the results that you call Julia sets um, is usually the quadratic family. So you use functions of the shape um, x squared plus some complex number. But in theory, you can do it with any kind of function that has one parameter and that maps to the complex uh, values uh, or complex numbers. And... Um, the, the typical pictures that you would see of Julia sets is usually a filled Julia set, um, and those are very famous pictures. Typically, most people might have seen one without knowing that that's a, a filled Julia set. And the difference between a filled and a non-filled Julia set is that um, then if, if you imagine any kind of area, then you can just take the, the boundary, like the line that surrounds it, and this line that surrounds the area you call the Julia set, and the interior uh, together with the with the boundary you called fill Julia set, and because the the Julia set itself would only be a line or a set of some points that would be hard to to show graphically. So um, typically, what you draw is is the actual fill Julia set because it's easier to to visualize. And um, these are very famous for the quadratic family because they basically can give you any shape you want or not any shape, but, but various shapes. Uh, Surprisingly many. Um, there is, of course, one thing uh, which should be present in the function that it's nonlinear. Because with linear function, everything is kind of clear. And uh, we are probably very much used to uh, living in a world where everything is considered to be linear, uh, that we are surprised about facts which happen when we really go nonlinear. So, for example, quadratic is nonlinear enough uh, to make that happen. Um, the thing is, um, you were referring to points in the imaginary plane, so that you have to um, really use imaginary numbers. Is this really a feature which is connected uh, to working in the complex plane? Or is this just uh, because you want to use a plane so that you have two coordinates um, which are affected by your function. I guess you can also construct chaotic behavior without using the complex plane as a, a um, domain for, for some parameter that you use or, or, or a starting value. But um, using the complex plane um, has the advantage that adding and multiplying um, uh, Graphically speaking, they uh, they they um, move into different directions, so to say. If if you um, if you look at real numbers, then you only have a one-dimensional space, one real line. Yes, exactly. But for complex numbers, um, every multiplication is on the one uh, is is a, a movement along a vector, and um, that's why it can happen. Uh, that's why it can happen that. Um, for smaller values. Uh, so in a way, it's just much more freedom if you go from one dimension to two dimensions. Yes, it it, um, it makes it easier to, to generate the, the very chaotic behavior that you see on the surface. 
because sometimes um, a product means to change the angle of the point where you find yourself and the absolute value. And both of these are equally important. If you look at the real numbers, then um, after executing one step, you will only look at the absolute value and um, that will most likely have some kind of uh, monotone behavior if if you were to, to use the real numbers. But if you use the complex numbers, that's why you can never predict what's going to happen because a slight change in the angle of the, of the number that you're looking at um, and you will skip beyond what we will later call the uh, escape point and um, your series will diverge. And on the other hand, if, if you don't do that slight change in the angle, then you still stay below your uh, boundary and, and everything is fine. So this in, in, in part leads to the chaotic behavior that you see. Uh, hmm. So now you used chaotic for the second time, so it might be a good idea to explain so, of course, from everyday life, everybody has an idea what chaotic means. But uh, in mathematical terms, of course, we mean a very special property by uh, saying a certain behavior is chaotic. Yeah, I, I guess the the definition that is easiest to understand is that you take a function that has a parameter and you ask yourself, if I change this parameter, how much does the, the result of the function change? And if I can say that changing the parameter a little bit um, leads to a big change in the function, then you would normally call this a large derivative, simply. Mm. But if you can say this about any scale, like no matter how much you zoom into your function plot, it always uh, changes drastically um, over the parameter, uh, or you find a space, at least, where, where, where that's true, then then you can call it chaotic in, in layman's terms. So um, if you cannot predict the behavior in some sort of linear sense or approximate it linearly, then you would call it uh, chaotic. Now one example for that is if you are considering an ordinary differential equation, just a process which develops in time, for example, from some initial condition, um, and there are no parameters in the differential equations, but of course uh, the initial condition could be changed slightly. And probably if you have a real thing which you want to model, you will start with something which is measured. And so, so with measurements, you always have small mistakes. So what you would hope is that if you have a small mistake in your initial condition, it doesn't really change the outcome too much, at least for you know short enough time intervals. And um, uh, the, the opposite of that is if you are just changing this initial condition slightly, um, the result after 10 minutes um, is completely different from the initial condition, which is really nearby, so like in inside the error bound for your measurements. And uh, in a way, this is, is really kind of a drastic uh, realization that this can happen because we all kind of believe in that small errors don't really matter <laughs> because otherwise we can't really work with our models. But um, very often we have to uh, see that that's not true and kind of the possibility to give this a name in mathematical terms is to say that um, there is an, a chaotic behavior to be observed. And so kind of the relation between um, the initial condition and the outcome through the equation is abs absolutely disconnected. And... Um yeah, the, the the reason why I thought the topic was interesting back when I did my uh, bachelor's thesis was um, 
that you're so used to to the idea that um, math is precise and physics, for example, isn't as much. Like if you do a physical experiment, then your initial conditions aren't precise. Room temperature changes, your position changes, air pressure changes. So the experiment is slightly flawed, but your model is stable enough to to deal with it. Um, so the math is precise and, and the physical model is flawed and, and then you say that the error that the physical model does is only impacts your the, the results of your model slightly. And um, what I found intriguing about this topic was that in, in, in this topic you even see that um, for this problem even mathematical models start to fail. This uh, Describing the, the shape of a Julia set just by seeing the complex number that creates this Julia set is basically impossible. The shape is way too complex and um, and trying to deal with that and, and to see how math tries to yeah to, to deal with it and, and somehow get a grip on how we can still regard these these sets in a mathematical sense. I thought it was really interesting. Then hmm. of course there is also something on the bottom of that Uh, where we always have this feeling as long as we have something which is deterministic. So in your case, we just have a function. So you put some um, number into the function and you evaluate the result without making any error in calculating it. And then you just take this number, put it into the same function and calculate the result. So this is really absolutely deterministic. Nevertheless, you can't really predict the outcome. And you always think... Uh, as a mathematician even, which is trained very well, that these kinds of things can only happen if you have stochastics. Yeah? So some kind of hidden process which um, is changing uh, things um, behind kind of the obvious um, to something which are not predictable in the value, but just predictable kind of in the mean value or in the distribution around the mean value or things like that. And so here we really have something which is absolutely deterministic and we really don't really think about errors which could be in the calculation at the moment at least and uh, nevertheless by changing the first number so for where you start the process of iteratively always reapplying the same function uh, the outcome looks completely different yes and the fascinating thing I always see is that um, we take two simple things One of them is a multiplication. The other one is adding two numbers. Those are very simple um, steps to perform. And still, out comes something really complex. And um, it's similar to taking one drop of ice, which uh, one one uh, drop of water, which you could imagine as a as a sphere, which is a simple shape. And then you freeze it, and you get like um, these star like figures that are suddenly very complex and it's a similar amount of water it's it's still the same water you've only changed the room temperature and suddenly you get a very complex shape with a lot of details and a lot of very different properties to what you had before so you take multiple very simple things and put them together and get something very complex that is much more complex than the the, the, the sum of the parts yeah. that you put in so That's somewhat counterintuitive. So, um, of course, you're, <laughs> you were working with Julia sets quite a lot. So, if you tell me that they are chaotic, I'm kindly, I, I try to, I tend to believe 
because um, I think you're a serious person uh, and um, doing your things properly. But how would you um, convince yourself of the fact that uh, Julia sets really behave chaotic? What would be a procedure which someone could do at home in order to see that chaotic behavior? What you can do is simply um, take um, values uh, and, and, and just compute uh, uh, the, the result that you get if you apply the, the function over and over again. And if you, if you don't believe someone who has already drawn a picture, just, just take a picture that someone has, has created of a Julia set, take one point that is supposed to, lie, uh, to be uh, positioned inside the Julia set and one point that is supposed to lie outside the Julia set. Take those as starting values and then compute. And then you will see, okay, the point that's inside stays bounded, the one that's outside very quickly usually um, deteriorates and, and the absolute value of the number increases massively. And then you take a, a straight line between those two points and you repeat the same procedure along the line. And for a non-chaotic shape, you would expect that there's some point where uh, where you leave the Julia set, where you simply go out. Mm. And what you find with Julia sets is that you never find that. It just doesn't happen. Um, what happens is eventually you start to if you if you start from the inside eventually you will find your first points where you're actually outside and then you move along in the same direction you keep moving and suddenly you're inside again and then you're outside again and then you think okay now i reduce the the, the steps i make so i, I don't move uh, 0.1 along the complex axis i move 0.01 and you repeat the same game and the same thing happens again and again and again and again as long as you stay close to the area where you mostly move uh, from the inside to the outside. And um, that's where it really gets, gets difficult if you want to draw the pictures, because if you, if you only draw very few points for one of these pictures, then you will just see some blurred shape that looks somewhat like a line or a circle or something. And then as you zoom into um, the area that's close to what you perceive as the boundary, you see that it's a very complex shape. And, and while you keep zooming, you still see that that's true. And you can simply see it by, by just computing. And um, the easy thing about this example is also that you can usually apply the function something like 10 times, and you will already see whether it diverges. It's very um, seldom, in, in, or in, in most cases, it happens very quickly that it diverges if it does. So it's um, pretty simple to, to just try it out. So if you have a programmable uh, calculator, that's that's already enough, yeah. usually. It's not very time-consuming. It's only time-consuming to make sense of the things you observe. Yes. Because it uh, sounds really uh, unbelievable that um, having such a boundary in your um, the picture in your head, kind of the model of the thing you, which you have in front of you, you would really expect that uh, coming from the inside... You stay inside and you go outside when you stay outside. But what you are prescribing is that the boundary is not like one line, but there are many, many boundaries where you go inside, outside, inside, outside. Um, and this is um, not really uh, connected um, to every chaotic behavior which we observe, but this is very much connected um, to these kinds of sets. And um, one possible name for this that you kind of if you go nearer and nearer so in numerical terms you were just uh, choosing the step size smaller and smaller um, you see certain 
uh, geometrical patterns, which you have seen in the big picture, which um, as a first picture was the picture of the boundary in your head. And then you go and zoom into this picture and you rediscover it on different scales. Another set that I was uh, regarding in, in my uh, bachelor's thesis or that I was taking a look at was the Mandelbrot set because it results naturally from from um, studying Julia sets. And that set is very famous for, for this exact point because uh, it has a lot of small Mandelbrot sets on, on the big one and then you, you take a look in, at the small ones and they're basically an exact copy of, of the big one on smaller and they have the small ones again on the sides and um, you can repeat this infinitely many times that's it's interesting to see because you don't believe it at first and uh, but when you see it when you compute it then then it becomes obvious that um, the structures and, and also that the structures vary massively if you just change the the parameter that you use to generate the whole picture. If you change this slightly, the whole structure changes. It's not like only a, a small area changes. All these structures that the, that the uh, zoomed-in uh, parts inherit from the zoomed-out version, they also change completely. So um, it's, it's really amazing to see that, that these uh, systems don't give you any predictability at all. You would think that after a while of, of looking at them, you would have some kind feeling, of sense, yes, yeah. but not at all. Mm. Not even simple things like th that you would expect if I... Um, that the further towards uh, zero you go with your starting point, it's more likely to, to have a point where your series converges, but not even that's true. There's a lot of uh, Julia sets that, that have points very far out uh, where they suddenly have some small uh, structure and near the origin they don't contain any points so um, not even the, 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 the simplest predictions work with these sets yeah. just stay near to zero and not so much terrible things are happening is even not true nothing course, works <laughs> nothing works uh, of course there's a pr problem connected to that um, if you have this inner picture for example of this Mandelbrot set where you have uh, the boundary is consists of uh, a lot of smaller Mandelbrot sets in a smaller scale. And on this, there are even smaller ones. And if you would like to calculate the length of the boundary, um, you, it takes just a few moments to think about that uh, in order to understand that it's probably infinitely long. Yes. <laughs> and there's uh, really no possibility to um, even attach the name boundary to that because it's not really something which is a line and um, then you could ask yourself if this is kind of a fancy thing which mathematicians find interesting but it has really no application at all <laughs> and that's not true <laughs> that's fortunately not true at all one could say unfortunately because of course if you see something like that in real life it makes your life really hard For example, uh, one interesting question which is really hard to answer is if you have um, as a boundary of, for example, the country, uh, not especially at an, as a nation state, but kind of the boundary between land and, and seaside. So very often you have uh, structures uh, which come out of the, the land going into the sea. And uh, the more you zoom into it, uh, the more of smaller um, 
such things. Of course, they are not really self-similar in the sense, but um, the more you zoom into it, the longer the line between um, the country, the body of or where we live on, and the sea um, gets longer and longer. And it's really a difficult question to say uh, how then you can define the length of the coastline, for example, because you will have to give kind of an additional information in what sense um, this is an approximation um, where you live with the fact that, of course, you just draw a line and you know that um, on the left-hand side there is still a bit of sea, which you consider not important enough, and on the other side there is still a bit, little bit of land which you don't consider important enough to be measured because you can't really draw the whole picture. Yeah, but imagine a beach yeah. with, with grains of sand. Yeah, you know, I, this is of course true, <laughs> and that's it's really a nice example. And I w would like to have come up with this idea, but you could consider this to be an esoteric question. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's true. Yeah. yeah, but this is just uh, the kind of the prolonged, uh, just taking my idea one step further, that it's really impossible to draw this line, where where the sea just goes over to the land because um, you have such a fine structure of it that it's not really one-dimensional if you want to take it serious. And then you, if you want to stay with a line, you have to just make an approximation. Yeah, and it's, it's mind-boggling because we, we can imagine dimension one very simply and dimension two also. Yeah, like but an what's area, in between? Everyone, yeah. Yeah. everyone can imagine a square and everyone can imagine a line, but something with a dimensionality, uh, dimensionality in between... That's, yeah. you get a glimpse of it when you take a take a look at uh, Julia sets, but but other than that, it's I haven't come up with a way to to explain to myself what dimensionality uh, mm. uh, 1.5 means. I I cannot grasp it. But um, topics like this show us that that um, there's a lot of areas where where our intuitions fail, and sometimes they are closer than we expect them to be. And uh, it's nice to become aware of that. Mm. Oh, when I first really kind of understood this problem, with um, sometimes you don't really have to so, so have a, a line which is infinitely long and doesn't make sense to consider it a line any longer. I was really uh, kind of angry with my professor at university. <laughs> of course, you know he's long dead. <laughs> Can't really be angry with a dead person, but. Uh, you have one term uh, when becoming a mathematician where you learn a measure theory. And um, I would say, well, without um, being too nasty, that most mathematicians really hate measure theory. <laughs> because it's kind of, it, it's always introduced as something which is really abstract. So not really um, hanging on your imagination, but completely forgetting about all imagination. And just introducing certain sets, which at the very beginning are really abstract, and only at the end you come. Mostly, you end up with Lebesgue spaces, so you have a way to measure again, like lines in a certain sense and areas in a certain sense, and then uh, you can integrate. So, which you know is 
even if you have a good education at school, you could integrate after that. <laughs> But, you know, to probably integrate in a way that you can also make processes where you go um, with a series which is infinitely long and you want to have certain properties in the series and you want to have that uh, element to which it converges, it still has this property, you really need uh, a proper in integration. And so for that, uh, you know, I kind of agreed to suffer to learn measure theory. But... Of course, the background for that, that people came up with measure theory, was that they had this mind-boggling experience that sometimes it's absolutely impossible to work with one, two, and three dimensions. And nobody tells you that. <laughs> this would be such a nice motivational example where you immediately see, um, so with my everyday experience, I can't really make sense of what's, what's that object. And... Um, And then to really go to very abstract concepts really makes sense because we can't really very much draw on our experience, only on the very basic concepts of our experience. So how you, if you put two lines together, then the length of the line is kind of the double of the, or if they have the same length, it's the double, but otherwise it's just the sum of both and things like that. So you have to kind of think of the, the most basic properties of working with dimensions and then you end up with these abstracts, abstract set of axioms. And um, afterwards you have to find out which kind of things which you use as a mathematician have these properties. Yeah. Of course, um, there's always a problem hidden um, in working with Julia sets, which we kind of touched on, that um, you have to be really precise in all the calculations because every calculation error is uh, makes you fail at all yes if if the structure that you're trying to resolve is is smaller than the error you make while computing, then mm. you don't see the structure anymore in your results so um if for for these problems um the the really interesting point was that that um I had to on the one hand keep in mind what kind of structures I wanted to resolve. So I had to compute precisely, and I had to compute a lot. I mm. had to compute the series for a very long time to be able to make some sort of assumption whether it converges or not. Um, on the other hand, I had to compute a lot of these series, and I had to compute them precisely. So it's a lot of problems at the same time, and that's why it was um, an interesting topic to regard. Yeah. So what is the practical solution for that? Um Well, what you do is that there's um, one uh, one approximation you can make or, or one, one theorem about um, these series that you get which um, defines escape points uh, where you can say if, if your series ever gets uh, or if, if, if your sequence of values ever um, exceeds a certain value in, in its absolute, then you know it tends to infinity. And what you do is you say, okay, I... Uh, I always calculate something like 3,000 steps or 1,000 or 100. And if after that I'm above this escape point, then I can say for, for certain that... It's an escape point. So I'm outside. Exactly, that I'm outside. Mm -hmm. And um, if I'm not, that I'm, then I'll just assume that uh, for this starting value um, the, the sequence converges. Or not necessarily converges, but it doesn't diverge. Um, and... Then the, the other thing you do is um, if you want to draw a picture and a picture is composed of a lot of 
small colored points, then for every one of these points, um, if you zoom in, that that's an entire area again. So you have to you have to choose one one value, one starting point that you choose as a, a representative for this whole area, um, which you're not aware of in the beginning. That that one point in your picture is actually an area, and then if you zoom into that again, you get the same problem again. And uh, so you have to you you have to in some way discretize your uh, the 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 area that you're trying to solve the problem on. Then for every one of these points, you compute your uh, 3,000 steps of the sequence, uh, or however many you want to compute. And you use data types on your machines that are precise enough uh, such that the numerical error during this amount of computation doesn't exceed the, the, um, the absolute of the sequence itself, um, or the difference between starting points. And then you have at least a, a first way of computing this. Um, even with this simple thing, you already run into problems because um, say you square a, a number 3,000 times, then on most computers, uh, if you just write that as, as one line of code, um, then afterwards you will just get uh, not a number or uh, an error. And depending on the language that you use, you might also get a number um, because the, the uh, Depending on which architecture or which which programming language you use, um, the computer doesn't notice that you just went beyond infinity or or beyond, beyond the maximum is, validity, yeah. uh, the the maximum value that the computer can express. So you even have to take care of these things. So it makes sense to check in every single step whether you've actually exceeded and abort as soon as you've um, ever noticed that you've exceeded the um, the the boundary which was something that happened to me while I was doing my uh, master's thesis, uh, bachelor's thesis. In the beginning, I just got pictures that were uh, completely blurred um, and had random distributions of points all over it. And I was a little worried why this would happen. And then I noticed that um, it happens because the numbers just overflow. And so, yeah, the, yes. the problem uh, always keeps surprising you <laughs> it's kind of the funny thing that um it's obviously not very often that um the overflow is happening so that the uh, programming language doesn't really take care for that too much <laughs> it, it's all sorts of problems that you're not aware of before so this sort of uh it, it sharpens your um uh how do you call it uh, senses uh for, for the mathematical kind of senses, kind of, yeah. yeah. You decided um, to use um, a parallel um, structure for your program. Uh, was this triggered by the fact that you couldn't succeed um, using just one um, computing unit? So is the complexity so high? Um, yes, so if, if, you, if you simply try and do this in... in uh, a rough estimate. If if we take a picture of uh, a thousand times a thousand points, that doesn't seem like a lot. Most computer screens have more than that, so that would be what we need at least to be able to show some kind of picture. And now that we means calculate that... a screensaver. Exactly. If if we wanted to cal calculate a screensaver, then that would be something like two million starting values that we, that we would have to solve. Two million points for which we have to solve this problem. So that's two million times several thousand steps of our sequence that we have to compute. And what I found out 
with some simple implementations is that that takes minutes or even um, tens of minutes until one single picture is computed. And that's not really feasible. So I thought to myself, how can you do this more efficiently? And um, a short time before my bachelor's thesis, I had taken part in a competition where we were dealing with uh, high-performance computing. So um, I thought this is an interesting uh, thing to to investigate how we can uh, speed up this process. And um, what you do in parallelization is you have basically a lot of computing units that perform the same task at the same time, and you give them different data, so they execute the same um, commands on different data. So, for example, one command is multiply the value with itself, and everyone gets a different value. So everyone gets a different result, and then you say, add this number. Everyone does the same uh, step, and everyone gets a different result once more. And and this kind of problem lends itself perfectly to to parallelization because um, everyone does the same computational task. Um, they only use different data to start with. So uh, this was a very interesting um, way of trying this out. And then I tried different implementations, and, and what you see is that minor changes in the implementation and thinking about it and, and um, doing more elaborate coding or um, using um, different algorithms changes the the, um, the cost in both time and also in electricity, which I regarded for fun, um, massively. So I've, I have one plot where I compare a lot of computations that I've made, and just computing this plot cost me something like three euros in electricity alone. And this is a small mathematical problem. This is not uh, some weather simulation running on a high-performance computing system. It's computing pictures on my desktop PC. So um, I, I found it really interesting to, to see that if I program it on a specific architecture and invest time and um, know what I do, basically, then I suddenly get a program that takes something like three, four, five milliseconds. And if I take a very simple, uh, and, and costs me basically nothing, and if I take a very simple implementation, which I can write down quickly, then suddenly computing one picture costs me money, and it takes a lot of time. And I thought it's an interesting perspective to see that what we do as mathematicians and and uh, statements that we can make about these sets that we compute um, helps us save money. And we have to make an estimation of how much effort we put into the mathematical part, into the implementational part, and we have to consider how we want to use it in the long run. So mm. the typical example would be a weather simulation, which isn't a lot of help if it takes 10 days to compute what the weather tomorrow is going to be. Um, then your result is completely useless by the time you have it. And it's um, somewhat similar here. It's it's not worth computing a screensaver if it costs you a thousand euros in electricity. Um, Only if you can sell it to a thousand people giving you each an euro for it. And uh, that was something that I really like to see as a, as a mathematician, that, that what we do is, uh, or, or what we do here is, uh, uh, it, it, it has an impact on 
on day-to-day -day usage. Now, obviously, this is a simple example, and people in in uh, in the economy aren't sitting around, and, and or uh, in, in in businesses don't sit around and com uh, compute beautiful pictures of Julia sets, but. It's just a simplified version of more complex problems. In the second part of my bachelor's thesis, I regarded a slightly more physical problem. Um, and for a lot of um, applications that you would have into, uh, in, in, in real use, um, you would have the same problem. that You don't only want to have the result quickly. You also want to have it in a certain amount of precision. You would like to have it cheaply. You would, have, uh, you would like to have it uh, fast without using too much electricity and, and finding the ideal trade-off isn't always as simple as it seems at first uh, at the first glance. So what would be typical differences so things you change in your code in order to um, make the computation um, less costly? Um, essentially the assumption that helped the most was the idea that points that are close to each other still most of the time uh, yield somewhat similar results. Um, the, the problem with uh, graphics cards is every they have essentially a thousand processors maybe or 10,000 or, or 2,000 depending on which, which you take. Um, but every one of them has to do the same task at the same time. It's not like a thousand smart people sitting in a room doing computations. It's one smart person telling a thousand calculators what to do. So um, everyone has to do the same step. Now, if you imagine that for one of the points, you notice that it has already escaped your escape point after, say, three steps. Mm -hmm. And as a boundary, you, you maximally compute 3,000 steps. But the others still have to keep computing. Then this guy that's already finished still keeps computing and computing and computing even though he's already done. Now, that doesn't seem bad. If you have uh, 999 guys still computing and one waiting, that's not bad. Now, imagine it the other way around. Only one guy has to keep computing and 999 are done. So, 999 are waiting and the one guy is still computing um, because they have to do the same that he does. And he's not finished, so they have to keep going as well. And, and this kind of a problem... Um, makes it very hard to, to write a program that's actually efficient and that, that doesn't spend 99% of its time waiting for that one point that is still computing. So mm -hmm. you have to make some kind of assumption such that you always compute points together which get done quickly and you compute points together that take a long time. But the problem is what we're trying to compute is exactly that. We, we're trying to find out which points take long and which points don't. That, that's we what don't we're trying to find out. So <laughs> we don't know it in advance, so mm -hmm. we have to make some kind of an assumption. And um, what I came up with was to, um, to split the, the picture that I was trying to compute into small squares. And, um, for every one of the, uh, and then I compute a complete square at once. So um, the points that are part of the same square... I assume take similar time to compute, and that helps me to um, get a computation that is, while easy to implement or not very easy to implement, but rather simple to implement, um, is also extremely performant and uh, or uh, extremely efficient, in a sense. And um, what I was able to see was that it. Uh, Compared to any other computation that I made, it was definitely the, the best computation, no matter 
whether the Julia set was very empty, so whether there was very few points for which it actually converged, or whether it was a very big Julia set, it didn't make a difference. This sort of assumption is the best that you can make. And um, you can even make an implementation where you try and compute the result point-wise. So after every sing you always evaluate your function once, then you check for every single point whether he's done. If he is done, you tell him to get a new starting value. If he isn't, you tell him to keep going, and then you keep going. So everyone aborts as soon as they're done, but everyone has to check after every step, and if one point has to get a new starting value, everyone has to wait until this one point has a new starting value. So even this version where you think you compute optimally is a lot uh, slower than the version where you just compute complete squares because yeah, that the structure is so unpredictable that checking after every step just takes up a lot of time because you'll always have that one that one point that's done now, so everyone has to wait. And in the next step, the same thing happens over again. So we don't know the structure, and, and we're just trying to compute it, and um, there's no better assumption that than that the points that are somewhat close to each other have somewhat similar results. And uh, Which seems to contradict the chaotic behavior, yeah? Yes, it, it, it seems to do so, but um, it's the best we can do. Yes, I think uh, one of the reasons why this works is that um, with the chaotic behavior, we really choose two points out of the square, and we, we know that they are not really related enough in their results. But nevertheless, if you have the whole square, there are so many points, and so somehow all the many points, they have in, still enough things to do with each other even if it's chaotic in the result. So when you finished um, and had to hand in your bachelor thesis, because there's also only a finite amount of time we give you to finish that, uh, were there still problems which you would have liked to pursue? So like making this a bit more whatsoever, better in, in any sense? Um, something, that, something that I thought was very interesting was also to um, take a look at functions that are not of the quadratic family because that's um, somewhat well-researched or not well-researched because it's not like the biggest research topic of all time but um, there's a lot of pictures out there of Julia sets uh, for the quadratic family and the results are well known but if you take more complex functions then you delve into a, an, an area that's really complex that's something that I tried to also highlight in the, in the lecture recently um, another point that I did was um, after having an implementation that works, I try to find out how does this behave for different pictures that I compute. So not just how does the sequence behave for a different starting value, but also how does the, the picture that I get behave for, for different um, parameters of this uh, function x squared plus c that I use to, to generate these pictures. And um, then I try to map the performance of, of the algorithm um, above uh, the the starting parameter that I choose to generate the picture. And what I found out was that I get the Mandelbrot set, which I also um, explained in my bachelor's thesis. Mm. And then you can you can derive that the, uh, that the Mandelbrot set is, is just another Julia set, essentially, if you change the, the way you compute it a little bit. So that was that bridge. Um, and then also something else that I was, uh, that I was working with was uh, a more physical application of 
basically the same problem where you have a chaotic behavior across a two-dimensional plane, um, which was this uh, magnetic pendulum um, experiment where you place magnets in a plane and then you take a pendulum, which is also magnetic, and you locate it above the magnets and you just um, lift it to some point or lift it, but you, you move it to, the, to one side to a certain starting location and then you just let it swing. Now, if there were no magnets, you would expect it to eventually just stop at the bottom. like the Because you have a certain damping. Yeah, and, and uh, because friction inside the pendulum slows it down eventually yeah. in the air. But if you have magnets in this plane, then the, then the whole um, tra trajectory of the pendulum um, is also very uh, different from what you would usually have because you have additional forces that, uh, that affect the pendulum. Um, and what you find out for this is that you also get um, a sort of fractal uh, imagery and Then I started computing this, but the result that I found for, for this problem was that um, the same assumption using, using uh, um, uh, a mesh that is somewhat uh, based on, on squares. So you mesh the area on which you have the magnets and over which you let your pendulum exactly. swing. Yes, and, and if I use uh, squares there again, and basically the same algorithm that I had, had used before, um, I found again that, that the results of that implementation were optimal again. Um, so that kind of assumption proved to be um, very, very useful. So is the question to the magnetic pendulum really to see um, how it moves, or do, are you interested in kind of sets where it's more often, or I don't know? What I uh, what you try to find out is um, for which starting position of the pendulum um, it ends up where, and if you have, for example, three magnets, then there's four positions where the where the pendulum can end. Either it sticks to one of the magnets, um, or it stays close to one of the magnets in the end, or it 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 hangs uh, in the middle. Uh, yeah, straight down mm. uh, from from the point where it's fixed. So. Um, And, and you try to find out for a starting location, if I start right here, does it end um, at magnet 1, 2, or 3, or in its idle state? And uh, what you find out again is that you get this behavior where if you just move very slightly, you move half an inch uh, or half a millimeter uh, in, in one direction, and suddenly you end up at the whole other end of, of your experimental uh, um, domain in the end, because mm. the pendulum trajectory just changes chaotically if, if you change your... Starting position slightly, the point where you end up changes completely. Yeah, and of course, this is something which is um, really an experiment. So it exists in real life and it nevertheless has this chaotic behavior yes. that you studied before for numbers, yes. which, you know, they are part of our life as mathematicians, but might not be considered to be part of everyday life by everybody like us. Now, of course, they are kind of a model for things which really exist. So this is okay, I think. Of course, there is a question when you um, become a mathematician and um, take courses until your bachelor course, where was the point in your life uh, where you got interested in Julia sets and these kinds of calculations? Um, the, the Julia sets, uh, that really happened after the um, student cluster challenge because I started talking a lot to uh, Jan-Philipp Weiss, who was the supervisor of this uh, bachelor's thesis. And um, I was sure I wanted to go into this area 
with my bachelor's thesis. I, I wanted to do some work. Do in something the, in parallel. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Some parallel computing, maybe some high performance um, analysis um, or analysis of an algorithm, uh, how, how well it how well it performs in in a high uh, in in in, um, in a high performance uh, use case. Um, so we decided, or, or um, he proposed to me that that I could do some some uh, work along these lines um, as a bachelor's thesis. Um, and Julia says, uh, I I don't really remember precisely how we came up with with it. But I remember that that I was convinced that I wanted to do it as soon as I thought about it. Um, ah, yes, I, I remember. I, I read a book about um, pro uh, programming for graphics cards, and uh, they mentioned uh, uh, use cases for parallelization. And one of them was chaotic behavior. So I started to, to think about chaotic behavior, and I did some research. Um, and uh, you find Julia sets really quickly when 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 you start to research chaotic behavior because it's kind of the poster child um, as soon as you uh, start uh, searching for examples and um, th that's uh, the point when I um, started to talk to the supervisor about um, this this idea and he was also very convinced about it so um, I started doing it and, 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 and while I was working on it I was uh, I never doubted it, it, it was a very interesting topic and it was very interesting to see the results um yes and the funny thing is that in the end you can show it to everybody and everybody will say oh this is nice yes <laughs> the pictures they are so nice the it, ones which come out nice because you don't really show the aesthetic. other ones yeah, yeah but the blurred ones i keep to myself instantly deleted no um they are very aesthetic and, and i believe that's something that all people share that the assumption or, or that the perception that they are aesthetic um And as a mathematician, I think it's additionally pleasing to see how simple the the uh, the First, theory is that goes into it. Yeah. There's no, we don't bring the the complexity to the table, and then we're surprised that it's complex. We take something simple, and then we're surprised that it's complex. So um, yeah, you get both those things: the, the surprise, how a simple problem can develop into something very complex, and on the other hand, the aesthetic and and really beautiful results that, that come out in the end. Mm. I really clearly remember the first time uh, I met this topic because I was just thinking about it. Because I was, when I was a student in Dresden, I was trying to organize a lecture of someone from the physics department on something. I don't really remember what that was. But I remember that I had to go to the physics department to uh, a professor which was completely unknown to me. I was just asking for my fellow students if um, he would take the time to explain something to us as kind of an, an afternoon task, extra lecture. And then he was like, oh, that's so nice that you come to me as a mathematician. And of course, I would like to make an extra lecture for you. But you know, I have something which I find much more interesting. So chaotic behavior, that's something I would really like to explain to you. And this was really kind of, you know, the first time I really um, crossed the path with someone who was really so absorbed of some new research topic yeah. uh, that he was really like ah, almost burning in front of my eyes. And um, the lecture was really excellent. And then he was trying to get someone of us working with him uh, on the topics in, in research. 
And I think we didn't really estimate then uh, the chances which were given to us, but uh, we only considered the workload, which we couldn't fees, <laughs> couldn't really uh, put into our daily things, which have to be done as a student in order to finish in time and with good uh, results. But uh, I still remember that that first time uh, when I really saw his eyes glowing. Because this was the time when this kind of came up as a topic because this was the first time when the computers were able to produce these nice pictures and they found all kinds of strange connections so to biology and physics and mathematics and they were like, oh, this must be a big thing if there are so many connections. Yeah, the, the fascinating thing is that if you, if you look at the first publications that were made on this topic um, from the 1900s, People sat down and computed for days to yeah. construct the boundary of the Mandelbrot set in a rough estimate. And there's sketches of what it might look like. Today we can compute that in, in, in milliseconds. But back then it was really difficult. And, and even those people noticed while they were doing it that this topic was worth the work. It was worth the effort because it it really gives you the the the, the feeling of discovering something new every time. Because... If you just plug in one number, you get something that maybe no one has ever seen before and, and something that no one can describe in words in their whole lifetime. No one will be able to, to, to describe one of these sets entirely. And um, that just, to me, has a lot of fascination uh, associated with it. And, and um, on the other hand, it also teaches you a lot. So I, I think that's a really perfect topic in, in a sense for, for students because it prepares you for, for what's to come. Once you delve into an abstract field and into a theoretical field such as math or, or physics, um, not everything is the way that you, you would assume it to be by rough estimate, and not, not everything can be linearized. And, uh, oh, without losing all its main properties. <laughs> yes. You could also draw Julia sets just with... with rough boundaries and uh, they, they would all look somewhat alike and be very blurry and yeah that yeah that would be what happens if, if you would use your intuition for everything and that would be very uh unmathematical so i thought this was a was a very good point sort of to start your own academic endeavor with julia sets yes. well thank you for taking the time it was really an interesting hour 